you're passionate about transforming retail operations and improving performance, plus you're accountable for key change projects and programs in your company, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. Hello and welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. I am Oliver Banks, your host, and I'm delighted to be your guide to help support you and show you the way towards successful retail transformation. Thanks for tuning in. This one is episode 144, number 144. And boy, oh boy, do I have a treat for you today. In just a moment, we're going to be joined by Doug Stevens the founder of the global advisory firm Retail Profit and one of the leading retail futurists and influencers in the world. His thinking, his ideas, his creativity as well have been hugely influential, hugely inspiring to so many individuals across the retail market. And he's worked with a number of top name brands and retailers to help really shape the future of retail. With over 25 years in the retail industry, Doug has really unique perspectives and is regularly featured and referenced in so many different publications. I think we'd run out of time. He's the author of The Retail Revival and Reengineering Retail. Plus, he has a brand new book out now, which is called Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World, which is a brilliant read. Show notes from today are going to be over at obandco.uk slash 144. That's obandco.uk slash 144. So grab something to make notes with, because here is my conversation with Doug Stevens. So I'm very honoured today on the Retail Transformation Show to be welcoming the retail profit, Doug Stevens. Doug, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm I'm really excited about our conversation as we explore resurrecting retail and what that means, which is of course the title of of your new book which we'll be we'll be diving into in a lot more detail. First things first, I'd just love to hear what's your sort of bird's eye view of the retail market? What what are we seeing right now as we're sort of emerging from the pandemic? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and, and I mean, you know, there's there's so much going on. Right? <laughs> I mean, there's just so much going on. It, it is such a dynamic situation. To try and sum it up in a sentence or even a paragraph is difficult. But I think you know, and I and I and I I think I've sort of characterized this in the book. I think for a long time, Oliver, and I'm sure you've sort of felt this from your position too. The retail industry has been straddling two completely different worlds. The industrial world of retail from from whence we have all come to get to this point <laughs> and and the digital world of retail which in some aspects I think has been sort of a vision, right? I think we've we've cobbled together enough digital capability to perform e-commerce or mobile commerce, digital commerce, the way we do today. But I think there's also this incredible vision of, you know, the metaverse and, and sort of this next, uh, this next iteration of the internet mm. that sits in front of us. And I, and I think what the pandemic did, if anything, 
was it really pulled the retail industry now kicking and screaming across that threshold? And so here we are. You know, we are now living in a post-digital, post-pandemic world that offers us now the ability to really transform the industry. Yes. And and I think in positive ways, you know. So I think that's what everyone is feeling now is the discomfort of finding themselves across that point of no return. Mm-hmm. Some brands prepared very aptly for this time. Others have staved it off as long as they could. Yep. And most are trying to, uh, you know, sort of fumble in the dark uh, to find the keys uh, for this new era. So mm. I think that's where we are. Yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting. I was uh, reflecting only yesterday, actually, in conversation with someone that it's it's just so fortunate time and time again that actually, it sounds a bit weird to say fortunate, that this has happened now and not like 10 or 15 years ago because majority of retailers were at least on the journey towards becoming more digitally enabled and more digitally savvy and sort of set up with fulfillment centers and so on. I wouldn't have liked to have imagined what that could have been like um, just a few years ago from from a retailer's perspective, but also from our perspective as, as consumers, right? It would have been a lot harder to get through. Indeed. And, and I mean, you know, what's interesting about that, and I think that's a really astute observation, is that what I find interesting is that is precisely what happened in the Chinese market in 2002. Yes, of course. You know, the Chinese market, e-commerce, digital commerce was virtually non-existent in, in China mm. prior to SARS. And um, when you look at the, uh, the you know, any, any sort of data that shows percentage of the retail economy that was being performed digitally pre and post SARS, it just goes basically parabolic uh, after SARS. And so uh, the Chinese market and Chinese consumers had to very, very quickly accelerate into that digital future. And it's this year, as a matter of fact, that China is now 52% digital commerce. Wow. So you're right. I mean, on the one hand, it could have been a lot worse had we found ourselves in this position 10 years ago. On the other hand, had we found ourselves facing a pandemic 10 years ago, we may be upwards of 40% digital commerce in the Western uh, mm. economy today. Who knows, right? But it would have been difficult for sure. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to fast forward to 2040, let's say, and see, see what happens then. I'd like to dive in, Doug, into the book and some of the sort of the key themes. You introduced this term apex predator, which I, I love. <laughs> Des- describe uh, what, what an apex predator is for everyone, please. Well, in the book, I talk about the idea that, you know, on the one hand, we can look at this very superficially and we can, we can simply look at the situation of Alibaba, Walmart, JD.com, Amazon, of course, you could add in Pinduoduo in China, Mercado Libre in, in South America, these massive, massive digital ecosystems. We could look at them and say, you know, that this crisis was tailor-made for their businesses, right? And, and Amazon has certainly mm. been a beneficiary of, of the crisis, as have so many of them. But on the other hand, I think the more complex way to look at it is that if you are Amazon and and your last quarter of growth was 46%, 
if I'm Jeff Bezos, what I'm thinking is, what are we going to do next year for an encore when the pandemic is over? Mm. And so I believe, and I think that the research in the book sort of bears this out, that all of these companies now too are, are looking at a new era of their own evolution. And when I use the term apex predator, I, I don't certainly don't use that as a pejorative. You know, I'm, I'm not being critical of these companies. I'm saying that they are now going to evolve to what I believe is the highest level of their own evolution, mm. where they cease to be sort of these pseudo retailer technology companies, and they literally transform into complete life ecosystems, mm. essentially bubbles that consumers can live in and get anything they want. And when you start to look at where companies like Amazon, Alibaba, JD are making major investments, it is in areas like education, healthcare, uh, transportation, uh, shipping, uh, banking, you know, huge investments in these categories. And when you stitch all of that together, it creates this sort of life ecosystem yes. that a consumer could live within and never have to come out. And that presents a tremendous new challenge to every other, not just retailers, but I would say every other business in the world. Yes. And I, I think as we've seen over the past 20 odd years in particular, more and more retailers have found themselves under the, the, the pressure of an Amazon or, or other apex predator. And I do wonder if, if that shockwave will now, will now extend and we'll start to see Shipping companies, well, where we already are seeing shipping companies under threat from Amazon, and we'll start to see, as you say, other companies as well. It's the, the ripple effect. Absolutely, it's a tremendous fear in in the banking industry, for example. Mm. I think that most people in the banking industry understand that Amazon is uh, dangerously close to flipping the switch on on a banking product you know not just sort of facilitating mm. transactions but actually stepping into the banking arena the insurance category certainly is thinking the same thing shipping and transportation i, I talk about in the book uh, the, the the very fact that fedex virtually dismissed amazon as as a potential competitor in the shipping and transportation yes. industry and uh, lo and behold, Amazon today looks after the majority of its own shipping, and uh, mm. and, and shipping is is a massive revenue category for them. So, no industry can afford to take the threat that these apex predators pose lightly. Absolutely not. And fortunately, uh, you do have a remedy for the apex predators, right? A way of continuing to play and continuing to stay in business, and they are the archetypes which are essentially a way of competing in a way that these apex predators cannot compete. And in the book, uh, you you raise a, a brilliant question or a phrase, I guess, which has certainly stuck in my mind since I read it. If your brand is the answer, what's the question? Which I absolutely love, Doug, I have to be honest. It's, um, yeah, inspired thinking and, and certainly... Both, both from my own perspective as well as for, for, for retailers as well, I've been thinking about that question an awful lot. You then go on to, to lay out 10 archetypes, which, as I say, are some of the different questions that you could be asking where your brand could be the answer. I'd like to ask you, though, Doug, what's the most intriguing type 
for you? Which one of those 10 really captures your, your own personal imagination? Oh, my goodness. Now you're asking me to choose between my 10 children. Um, <laughs> which, which do I love the most? Um, well, I'll, I'll answer the question and I'll try not to. I'm not being cagey about it, but I'll, I'll try and answer the question as fairly as I can. And, and just sort of backing up to your initial point, yeah, you know, what's interesting to me is that the retail industry, and this is not just characteristic of the retail industry, certainly I think it's the same in, in any industry, is that most companies are, are looking for a silver bullet. Mm. You know, most companies are looking for that one platform, that one piece of technology, you know, that, that is going to make all the clouds disappear and, and you know... <laughs> <laughs> pave the way for success into the future. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way, right? But the reality of the situation is that if we were to jump in the car right now, whether we were in London, Toronto, New York, doesn't matter, and drive down the street and look at the stores that we're passing as we're driving along, a minute fraction of the brands that we see around us would really hold any significant place in our hearts, mm. in our minds, most of them could go away tomorrow and we'd never even feel the difference. Mm -hmm. That to me is the real crux of the problem. Mm. That is the ultimate vulnerability. You know, if, if the consumer ultimately doesn't really care about your brand, there is no social network. There is no technology that will save you. And so... It was actually through one of the interviews that I was conducting for the book. I was speaking with Ben Kaufman from Camp, and he said, you know, at the end of the day, I think every brand really needs to be an answer to a consumer question. And so just like you, Oliver, it kind of got me thinking, and I thought, well, that, that's true. So let me think about that in terms of brands and, and the way that brands, different brands answer questions. And so... What I came down to were these sort of 10 evergreen consumer questions, questions that I thought, you know, this is a, it, it, it's a question that's legitimate, it's valid, and, and I suspect it's going to be a question that consumers will ask far into the future. Mm. Um, so questions like, who inspires me in the market? Which brands align with my values? Which brands do I get really great entertainment value from when I shop with them? Who has the best product in the market? Or where can I go for the best level of expertise? I mean, these are evergreen mm. questions, right? So I thought, you know, if, if brands could begin to really orient themselves around those questions and do a better job of really being the definitive answer to that question in their category, Yes. That comp comprises a strategy now, all of a sudden, right? Mm. And we can then start to look, once we orient toward that archetype, we can then start making cogent decisions about the technologies and systems and platforms and media programs that will support the, our position in that archetype. So hence the, the 10 archetypes came about. Which is, my, which is my favorite or which do I have the most energy around? I would say this. They're all very different. Um, and, and essentially, yes. <laughs> they, group, they group into four different categories. Um, brands can compete on the basis of culture. So here we have brands like Nike, for example, that is a real kind of, call it a social guardian. You know, Nike has positioned itself mm. now as a, as a social activist, a brand that really trades on values. 
yep. trades on big human ideas. Then you you go around the clock. We have Patagonia, a brand like Patagonia that is just an activist brand through and through. Every you know fiber of their DNA is pointed towards environmental activism. You continue around and you get into brands like Camp in New York City, a kind of a new era toy store experience that is really just a, a wonderful theatrical immersive experience. And I call brands like that artist brands, brands that may not sell anything that's different from what you could buy at Amazon online. But yep. what they do is they create this remarkable experience that in essence becomes the product. Yes, definitely. Continuing on, you know, we get into brands like uh, Nordstrom, for example, that has always hung its hat on service and expertise, you know, in this next level of, of uh, customer care. Uh, continuing through to brands like, and I, one of the brands I talk about in the book is B&H Photo in New York City that is just really a mecca for product information and knowledge and expertise. Yes. And then finally, we get into the product category, the product quadrant, and there you have brands like Dyson that have just basically said, look, we are just going to deliver the best engineered product in the market, whether it's a vacuum, a hairdryer, or anything else. So. Each of these archetypes is different. Each of them plays in a very different competitive quadrant, but each of them answers a very specific consumer question, and they do so definitively. Absolutely. It's, it's interesting. As you were describing some of those companies just there, Doug, all brilliant companies in their own unique way, which is kind of, kind of the point, right? But all, in my view, have kind of been great for a long time. How have you seen businesses that perhaps have been more mediocre, have been more standard and said, actually, you know what, we need to reinvent ourselves, we need to transform? Or is it actually that you need to have been one of these archetypes from birth almost? What are your thoughts? Can, can you decide an archetype partway through life and embody it? Yeah, I believe you can. I believe you can. I, I think that a few things can, can come as afflictions to brands. I believe that brands can lose their way. Good brands can lose their way. I believe that Target in the U.S. lost its way uh, during the financial crisis uh, of 2008-2009. Target was an incredibly strong brand, mm. was really pioneering some amazing collaborations and concepts, and frankly, I would say redefined their own category, redefined what a what a big box general merchant experience was all about. Yes. But then they lost their way, sort of panicked in the crisis. And then several years later, of course, Brian Cornell has come into the company and now has sort of straightened things out and gotten them back to the, at least gotten them back to doing the simple things well and, and put them in a position now, once again, to reorient themselves. So I do believe that that is possible. In other cases, I think companies just lose their sort of founder energy, you know? Yes. We can look at some of, uh, some of the digitally native startups that have grown out of uh, the last 10 years. They, they start mm. with incredible entrepreneurial energy, tremendous customer focus. They move very quickly. They're very dynamic and nimble, but then they get larger. Uh, then they get to, you know, $5 billion valuations and they have uh, venture cap 
you know, shareholders with expectations and they start to become more ponderous um, and, and, you know, slower moving. Mm. So companies do go in and out of these cycles, but I fundamentally believe that with the right commitment from the corner office, a business can reorient itself, realign against one of these clear consumer questions, and then begin to animate that value proposition. Mm. That's very interesting that, yeah, you do flip in and out and it's it's about discovering, I, I, I guess, continually continually reinventing yourself to make sure that you are staying focused and you're not getting bloated, shall we say, as you, as you expand and, and, and get comfortable in the marketplace. I, I'd like to, to, to take another pivot in the conversation, Doug, as, as we progress through the conversation. In your last book, Reengineering Retail, you, you, you said, if your strategy doesn't make you queasy, it's probably not that innovative. And if you are truly taking on uh, the journey to become one of these 10 archetypes, you're going to most likely need to go through quite a lot of innovation to, 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 to transform your operating model. But how do you tell if that queasiness is your gut saying, there's a lot of work to do here, there's some hard work, some hard thinking to do, versus your gut saying, this is the wrong direction. You've chosen the wrong yeah. archetype. <laughs> That's a good question. You know, and, and what, I, what I mean by that is that in a lot of cases, things get called innovation, right? Mm. I've had conversations with brands before where, you know, you would talk to a few executives and say, we're doing all kinds of innovative things. And you say, oh, really? Tell me, you know, just tell me about what you're doing. And, and in the course of the conversation, you realize that the things they're talking about are not innovations at all. <laughs> they, they are not, they, they may be improvements. They may be enhancements to what they're doing. They may be adopting uh, new methods or, or new ways of doing things for them, but they're not genuinely new, mm. you know, for the, for the consumer. And so we have to start from a place of, of at least understanding really what innovation is. And by definition, innovation is something that has not existed before, either a product or a process that has not existed before. Mm. And so um, the first step is really being, being discerning about how we define it. But then I think, you know, you have to uh, accept that risk that you just described. You know, of course, you have to do your, your due diligence. You have to thoroughly vet uh, ideas prior to taking them into experimentation. But I think that's the key thing is that, you know, oftentimes retailers that we work with, brands that we work with are daunted by change because they feel that it has to be across the board. Mm. You know, if we're working with a, a shopping center group, for example, and we say, you know, we need to we need to really put the uh, revenue model uh, of shopping centers underneath the microscope. All of a sudden, they fear that somebody's going to have to go to all their tenants and say, "Okay, the the rental model is changing now. You know, we're we're changing our model, and so on mass, we now have to move to this new model." But that doesn't have to be the case at all. Yep. You no, know, let's take one mm. center. Let's take one part of one center, and let's let's experiment with this notion that we need to change the the economic model of a shopping center. So I think a lot of times we get fearful because we feel like we have to try and boil the ocean with change, but we don't. 
you know, and and I think that it it's a cultural shift to come over to the way of thinking that says we are going to be constantly, constantly putting ourselves at risk. We are going to be constantly out there experimenting with new ways of doing things, pushing the envelope, trying to reinvent and disrupt ourselves in a constant way, as opposed to waiting for someone in the market to disrupt us. Mm. You know, a good example of that would be Victoria's Secret's been in the news a lot over the last few days, uh, frankly, over the last few weeks. And some people are saying, you know, um, I got I got sent an article yesterday that said, you know, this is a, a huge, a huge repositioning and it's going to be a massive success. And look, for the people at Victoria's Secret, I hope that it is. But I look at that and I say, you know what, it's too little too late. Uh, Victoria's Secret should have been leading this movement a decade ago or more. Yes. And and instead what they chose to do was cling and clutch their uh, their existing model and only changed when it became evident that there was no choice, that, that the market imperative was that they change. That is what you don't want. <laughs> you don't want to do that as a brand. They should have been at least poking and prodding at the universe a decade ago to see how they could potentially evolve to become a more inclusive brand. Um, so that, and that's just one example. And I'm sure we can all reflect on plenty of examples in a, in a similar way of, you know, companies that could have, should have, but didn't reinvent themselves. And, you know, it feels obvious in hindsight. Yeah. I mean, and, and I talk about this in the book, you know, Walmart um, by 2015 uh, was essentially, uh, again, sort of clinging to this idea that super centers were the way. Uh, why? Because that has that was what had made them successful, and so you you kind of had these two factions within Walmart. One faction that said, you know, we need to adhere to you know what Sam did and what got us to be the success that we are today, and then you have this this other faction that was saying, no, we we need to drop that and we need to go digital. Um, so mm. you know, it took an inflection point, and the inflection point was that Walmart began losing market share and revenue, and they began uh, losing market value relative to Amazon. Amazon that year actually became a more valuable company than Walmart. And believe me, that sent shockwaves through the company. So this whole notion, it sounds trite, but you know, people saying, well, you have to disrupt yourself before you get disrupted. I, I, I adhere to that. I think that that's absolutely true. Absolutely. And one of the words you've used quite a bit is experimenting, which to me, in my head, lends itself to science. In the book, you talk about the art of retail. So Doug, as we, as we wrap up our conversation, is retail art or science? Which way should you bias yourselves? Does it matter? Yeah, I think, I, th- I think it does. I think to some extent, really everything is a combination of art and science, right? Mm. A, a, a wonderful dancer a, a you know a fantastic singer uh, or a musician is is art and science but i think that the 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 more important thing is think about a great actor that reinvents themselves for new roles you know 
a Meryl Streep or someone along those lines, yes. you know, or um, you know, a Jeremy Irons, or you know, great actors that that say to themselves, you know, it would be easy for me to do the same role again, the same sort of typecast role. Mm. It would be much, much more difficult and risky for me to take on this new uh, character and and really push the boundaries of what people have seen me do before. And I may fall flat on my face. I may fail. But if I don't continue to reinvent myself, you know, eventually I just wind up like Robert De Niro doing, you know, kind of B movies, uh, you know, B comedies. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I think that the, the notion of experimentation, the notion of reinvention applies as much to art as it does to science. Mm. I think the, the critical thing is, you know, it really comes back to leadership. And there are two kinds of leaders, I think. There are those that say, I just want to keep doing what makes us successful and I'll ride that out as long as I can. And then there's the leader that says, I want to literally work to try and put our old model out of business. And in doing so, I'll own the new terms of reference in my category. Uh, those are two very, very different mindsets, obviously. Mm. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. Doug, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I found it uh, fantastic. You go into a huge amount more detail in your book, Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. And I'd thoroughly uh, recommend people do pick up a copy and find out a whole lot more. Any closing thoughts, Doug? Yeah, there is a closing thought. You know, as I was writing this book, uh, near the end of writing it, I actually came across a, another book, which I actually have right beside me today, The Romance of Commerce by Henry Selfridge, mm. uh, or sorry, Henry Gordon Selfridge. And it got me thinking, you know, it, it, I, I thought to myself, which, which, by the way, that book was written in 1918, right, in the heart of the last pandemic. Mm. And it really got me thinking about what Selfridge would have thought of the retail industry that he handed to us, and we have now sort of taken and and uh, grown, and the damage that our retail industry does. Mm. Whether we're talking about inequality, whether we're talking about the the sort of the ravages of global supply chains, the unfair treatment of workers around the world. And certainly the environmental damage that the industry does, the, the sheer waste, you know? Yes. And what I think is that I think we have a choice. You know, we sort of look at the future as something that happens to us, as opposed to looking at it as something that we can engineer, that we can, you know, guide our, our own destiny through. And so my hope is that in the aftermath of the pandemic, we really start to look at issues like, why have people left retail now? <laughs> why is there a shortage of retail yep. workers? Why can't somebody that works in retail buy a home and raise a family and put their kids through college anymore? Mm. Why is it that you know everybody needs a walk-in closet now to, to hold all of the clothing that they had? They didn't build walk-in closets in the 1950s unless you were a multimillionaire, you know? But now, of course, everyone has to have one. Mm. 
So I think it's a time for sober reflection. You know, we have an opportunity to not just carry on as everyone would like to, but move towards something that's infinitely better, better for consumers, better for staff, and ultimately better for the world. So that that's my parting hope, Oliver. Wow. And that's a huge transformative idea for everyone to take away. Doug Stevens, thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Oliver. Thanks for having me. What did you think of that? Was that not an amazing conversation? I loved every moment of that session there with Doug. It's inspired loads of thoughts in my head and I hope it did for you too. I would love to know what your thoughts, what your takeaways were from that session. Feel free to reach out oliver.banks at obandco.uk. Or hey, why not even share on social media what your key takeaway from this particular episode was? It would be brilliant to hear from you. And do go and check out Doug's book, Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. As I say, it's really an interesting read, very insightful, very thought-provoking. And if you're ready for some more listening to provoke more thoughts, then here are a few suggestions of what to check out next. First up, why not check out episode 128, where I was joined by Kathy Hackle and we spoke about AR, VR, and more importantly, retail in the metaverse. We touched on the metaverse in the conversation there with Doug, and I think that's a perfect complement to this particular episode. Also, check out episode 101, number 101, where James Bolly joined me to talk about purpose, why have a purpose and how to find it. A great episode, a nice compliment when you are thinking about the question that you and your brand is the answer to. And then finally, why not check out episode 90 and 91, which were the 10 P's to transform retail, where here's a clue. Number one was purpose. So do go and check out all of those episodes. If you cannot remember those episodes, then the one place that you must head over to right now is obandco.uk slash 144. And there you will find the show notes, including ways to find out more about Doug, as well as his book, and of course, those episodes for further listening. So do go and check out obandco.uk slash 144. Let's wrap this episode up right here. Thank you for tuning in. Please do subscribe if you're a new listener. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please could you leave a review as well? That would be awesome. Thank you so much. Stay safe and I will look forward to joining you on another episode of the Retail Transformation Show coming at you very, very soon. Bye for now.